Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken, and I wanted to let you know about a special offer. When you become a patron of the Cordial Catholic Podcast at $8 or more a month, Keith will send you a copy of my new book, The Bible is a Catholic Book. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic Church. I'm K. Albert Little. I'm an evangelical convert to Catholicism. And if there's one thing that I realized as I was beginning to dig into the ancient Catholic faith, it was how little I knew and the Catholics around me knew about the Catholic faith. Once I began reading about the Catholic Church from actual Catholic sources, I realized how much of what I knew was almost backwards at times. I really had no idea about what Catholics believed and the history of the Catholic Church. I was shocked. This podcast serves to fill that gap. I bring you talks from influential Catholic thinkers about actual Catholic topics from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. This week, I'm joined by returning guest Steve Weidenkopf to talk about paganism in the early church. Steve is fantastic on this topic. He digs into the primary sources to get real information, real history about Catholic topics. Did the early church borrow a lot of its mythology from other pagan myths? Things like the virgin birth, Jesus' death and resurrection, and his miraculous feats. Are these things just borrowed from paganism, repurposed and called Christianity? Is there any good reason to believe otherwise, that Jesus was a real historical figure and performed miracles and died and rose from the dead? Steve unpacks all of this with his trademark reasonableness and charity. He's great in this interview, guys, and I think you'll love it. You are definitely going to learn how to better defend and explain real church history with charity, cordially, I hope. Thanks for the fantastic information Steve provides and his great advice about how to share it. Please listen and enjoy. Welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I'm excited to welcome this week's guest back for a second time. I'm always excited to have a returning guest, and I'm particularly excited to have back Steve Weidenkopf. Steve is a lecturer in history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology. He is a sought-after speaker, a regular writer at Catholic Answers, and the author of Timeless, A Catholic History, amongst other fantastic books. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me on, Keith. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, you know what? I'm really excited to have you back because uh, I'm a bit of a history nerd myself, so I love to chat with another <laughs> historian, and I just love your approach to history. And in this episode, I really want to unpack some of the myths about the beginnings of Christianity. But I want you to take us even a step further back than that, because I love um, the way you write about history. It, it has a lot to do with the way that I try to fill in gaps with this podcast about 
Catholic topics. And you do the same kind of thing for history. You write about Catholic things from a Catholic perspective, and it's a different perspective than we're used to hearing from, I guess, mainstream historians. And so I want to start our discussion right there, because, you know, I was a history major in university, and I took courses in church history, and I was taught that the church had some very questionable beginnings, that it borrowed from pagan traditions, and that it became corrupted by Roman culture. And, you know, myths like these and others are so widespread that they aren't even seriously questioned anymore. But you, in your writing, which I love, offer a very different take on what's commonly held to be true. So I want to ask you first, before getting even into the details of the beginnings of the early church, you know, why is this kind of book, why is it so important for you to write? And why is why are these historical misconceptions about the church so prevalent to begin with? Yeah, those are that's those are great. That's a great question, first of all, and and uh, we'll we'll tackle that here in a moment. But I mean, to your larger point of just you know how I try to present uh, church history in particular, and and um, you know why it's important that uh, I, I write the way that I do, and and uh, you know what I feel called to do, frankly, to try to present uh, you know authentic Catholic history to uh, our modern society, which really hasn't uh, received that narrative, right? Hasn't received that. Story story, um, as you mentioned. I mean, most of what we're taught, um, even things that I learned as an undergrad myself, frankly, years and years ago, uh, you know, were, were very, very one-sided, very biased, very, um, you know, focused on really, frankly, an anti-Catholic and anti-church, and in many cases, just an anti-faith uh, perspective. And a lot of that, you know, comes from really the last uh, 500 years or so, uh, you know, if you go all the way back to the Protestant Reformation, uh, where some of this begins, but really it kind of takes itself back to the 17th century and in 18th century with the so-called Enlightenment writers and authors in uh, Britain and France in particular, who really, you know, had an animus against the church. They had an animus against religion and and faith as a whole, and they really wanted to, to, you know, lessen the impact of the Catholic church in the modern world and in modern society, which was was still even at that point was, was very, very influential. And so one ways in which they decided to do that was to utilize, uh, you know, episodes in the church's history, movements or events or even people in the church's history, and present really a false history, um, it, which has now become, it's, it's kind of, you know, highly ironic, and they were very, very successful at this, because what really is the false history, or at least definitely we could say very, very, very one-sided, uh, is, is kind of recognized as the standard narrative and is not seen, uh, you know, in another perspective that's, that's presented, like when I present in my work, this authentic Catholic understanding of history. And an authentic Catholic understanding of these different historical events and people, it becomes shocking to many people, right? And so uh, a lot of times it gets dismissed as, well, you know, this is just a faith-believing historian or a Catholic historian, so obviously he's going to, you know, present this from a certain perspective. And although some of that's true, you know, but one thing you could you can say, right, is that no matter whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant or a Muslim or you have no faith whatsoever at all and you're a historian, you, you know, it's every historian has a worldview. Every historian has a perspective. And the honest historian will tell you up front what his perspective is 
her perspective is. Um, it's the dishonest ones which kind of present their opinion and their worldview as being the one that's authentic and correct uh, and don't allow for any form of interpretation or any form of, of challenge. And that, that poses problems. So, you know, I write the way that I do and I present church history the way that I do to answer your question more directly because I, I think it's a very, very important, especially in our modern world for Catholics to know our own story, to know what I call, what I, what I see our history as, as being our family history, right? Because when we study church history, what we're doing is we're studying the actions of the men and women who have come before us in faith. And it's hard to, to you know, have a, a sense of Catholic identity to know who we are if we don't know our history, if we don't know who came before us and what they did. And obviously, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the church's history, as you point out, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of mischaracterizations in our society about the church and her history, uh, both from a secular perspective and even obviously from a Protestant or other um, non-Catholic uh, perspective. And it's important for us to know that authentic history so then we can defend the church and combat these myths uh, when they they come up. And, you know, to your second, the second part of your question there in terms of, you know, why do these myths persist or why are they so prevalent in our society? Well, you know, there's, mo there's a multitude of different reasons. I mean, there's different groups, right, that use these historical false narratives to attack the church. They could be, you know, former Catholics, ex-Catholics who have an animus or an axe to grind against the church for whatever personal reason. And so they, you know, they perpetuate these myths or create even new ones. Um, enemies of the church, as I mentioned, like these Enlightenment authors, um, you know, atheists, Protestants, frankly, um, many of them. I mean, when you look at Protestantism as a whole, its 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 history is is really kind of a created history. I mean, you you have to, in order to be authentically Protestant, frankly, you have to kind of tear down the history of the Catholic Church, because to to think and believe the opposite, to think that the Church is actually you know the church founded by Christ and calls really into question um, you know a Protestant understanding. I mean of of their faith and of their history and of their experience. And you know to quote uh, Cardinal Newman, you know he was the one who said to to know history is to cease to be Protestant. Um, and so you know and frankly there's other reasons you know why these these myths are are, are prevalent. Um, sometimes there's vested interests that want to keep these myths uh, you know want to perpetuate these myths. And frankly sometimes the the myths are kind of fun for people and they like to use them to attack the church. <laughs> That's a very gracious and, and generous response, right? I think uh, I like what you say. And this to me, uh, when I read your book was kind of uh, an eye opener for me, right? And but it, it's true from history from I mean, as objective history as you can get is that if you have a movement which is broken off in fundamental ways from the 1500 plus years of what was kind of a singular apart from the orthodox schism was generally a, a singular christian body if you have a group that breaks off from that you kind of need to re-examine history right and, and some of that re-examination of history will end up in almost this kind of in quotes fake news that we're hearing a lot about these days right yeah no, that's very true. I mean, you you really do, and I, I do mean this with all you know charity uh, to our Protestant brothers and sisters. But I mean, you you really to be Protestant, you really have to ignore and or kind of um, you know rationalize away. Frankly, you, you know, like you said, fifteen hundred years worth of the lived Christian experience, um, and you have to you know interpret uh, the writings of church fathers, for example, you know early early Christian writings in in a very 
anti-Catholic and non-Catholic way, which is very difficult to do, um, frankly. But it is done, you know, all the time. And or, or you just have to not ask the questions, right? You just have to kind of believe the false narrative that's usually presented. Uh, that you know everything was so corrupt by the time you get to the 16th century in the church and the Catholic Church that only this you know radical uh, revolution, this this theological revolution, this this reformation uh, could you know instituted by Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, and others could could somehow free authentic Christian faith from the the entrapment of the Catholic Church. Um, and, you know, and, and frankly, that's that's obviously not historically true and accurate, but that it's it's the necessary edifice that has to be built uh, for you to continue to believe the way that you believe and separate separated from the church that Christ founded. Yeah, and I like what you say about the different reasons for believing these things. You know, sometimes it's maybe intentionally perpetuating a myth for 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 fun or for a certain worldview you, you hold. But I got into a conversation with an Anabaptist pastor uh, who I heard his, his sermon and listened to it again in a podcast just to make sure I was I was hearing it right. And this guy's fantastic. You know, him and I are both after the same thing. We're both after Christ, we're both after Jesus. And we've we found him in different places. But with all due respect, I emailed him because he was presenting a narrative about real historical church history events as if, you know, there were these Christians that were um, pure and uncorrupted by the political uh, scene that Constantine brought in, this remnant of Christians that somehow survived all through history um, while the Catholic Church became corrupted. And and he had some very specific quotations from some specific church fathers. Um, and we had a back and forth dialogue, and I don't think either of us got very far, but it was very charitable. But, sure. but that illustrated for me the idea that you can be steeped in your own uh, version of, of church history that you've heard that's been passed down without really taking a close look at that. And, and you can be really steeped in that and believe that. But, but for me, and I think for you and, and readers of your, your fantastic books, once you dig into church history as a whole and read not just selections of those sources, but maybe the entire source, maybe the entire writing catalog collection of that church father rather than just snippets presented to us then you see a catholic history of the church yeah that's exactly true you know when you when you just said that it made me think of of just uh you know even how we you know present or, or rather look at the scriptures right i mean how we talk about in the catechism that you know when you when you read the scripture and you try to interpret scripture and the church interprets scripture obviously one of the principles it, it, it follows is this understanding of the content and unity of scripture right the scripture has to be seen as a whole and you can't just take things here and there passages here and there or books here and there or events here and there and isolate them from the whole. And I, I think you you aptly described that beautifully, frankly, in, in terms of church history. It's the same kind of thing. You can't take one event or one document or one papacy or, or one writing of church of a church father uh, and, and and isolate it from from the rest and and not present it authentically and understand it authentically from that whole. And as we were talking, one more thing I just realized that, that in terms I didn't mention was, you know, why 
do some of these myths uh, uh, per, or continue to persist and why are they so prevalent? And I think one thing just to, to, to um, we should put out there for, you know, those who listen is uh, to the podcast is just sometimes people, you know, uh, don't fit any of those categories in terms of being enemies of the church or, or whatever. And they, they just uh, are simply ignorant. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative sense, but I mean that just that they they literally have not read or taken the time to read or to study, you know, the history of the church or the history of Western civilization, frankly. And they just kind of repeat what they've been taught either, you know, in high school or college or what they've heard about something. Uh, you know, and we live in that society where things are always focused on the 30 second soundbite or the, you know, the quick Twitter, you know, quick tweet or whatever, or the, you know, brief Facebook poster or all these different social media things and the Instagram post and this and that. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's hard for, for people in modernity to take the time to to step back and think, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm only getting you know a small piece of this. Maybe I need to spend a little bit more time and, and kind of peeling the onion, so to speak, and look at it. And um, you know, frankly, even before I got into the podcast, I was just talking with my wife, and who's taking a class at a local university here. Uh, in American history, and um, you know, the, it's a, it's a history of the Native American peoples, and you know, the professor today talked about uh, how the how happy he was that the university no longer celebrates Columbus Day, for example, uh, and instead it just follows in in uh, on fall break, and you know, without getting into that whole, which is not really the subject of our of our talk today, but without you know getting into the whole Columbus and this and that and everything, but you know, people just kind of accept that, and just say, oh, oh yeah, the, the narrative of Columbus is you know he was a genocidal maniac that you know killed hundreds of you know thousands of native americans and it was a you know european colonialism and a blight on 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 the western hemisphere and you know how horrible this guy was and everybody just believed that without without challenging it even and thinking about it and asking questions about it and trying to determine you know is what i've being what i'm being taught you know authentic and accurate yeah and that's that's fundamental right that that I like how you equated that, and maybe we're going back and forth here because I had the thought and you have the thought, and it's the same kind of thought. But, right, when we're critical, when I was critical, hey, as a non Catholic of my theology, that drew me to look closer at wider Christian theology. When I was more critical of my theology, of my history that I'd learned, even as a, even as a history major, uh, you know, that drew me to look at church history from a wider perspective. So I, I feel like what we have to do and, and be as Catholics is continually, especially I think in what is more and more a post-Christian environment, right? Is we have to be more critical of the history, the theology, the, the worldview, we're presented with and, and realize that it is uh, usually a particular and not necessarily uh, in, intentionally so, but sometimes, like you say, without people aren't, aren't questioning it, maybe, but there are these worldviews, these theologies, these versions of history that we as Catholics need to be questioning. Absolutely. I agree 100%. You know, and you're on the front line there, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> let's get let's get down into the weeds then. So we're talking about the early church and some of these just super prevalent myths that surround the beginnings of the church. And the first myth I want to kind of tackle, I think, is the most important myth that you're likely to hear about the early church. And that's, frankly, that Jesus didn't exist, that he was a myth made up by Christians, a myth that was some kind of a weird conglomeration of other pagan mythology, maybe. But he certainly wasn't a real person. He couldn't have really existed. How do we respond to this first most, I think, fundamental challenge to the early church? 
Yeah, that's you know that's kind of a at first blush, right? When people come into contact with that, even myself when I came into contact with that, you kind of had to you do a double take a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, there really there are people that that question whether or not Jesus was actually a real historical person, but yes, there are. Um, and, you know, they're, they're actually, there's a name for these kind of group of people. They're called mythicists, right? They're people that, that really believe, honestly, that Jesus is just this made-up individual. He was not a real historical person, you know, uh, not even get into any of, of the theological understandings of who Jesus was from a theolo- theological perspective. Just literally, as a historical person, they believe that he, he really didn't exist, that he was somehow the creation of, of Christian writers uh, of the church, uh, and that there's no outside proof or anything uh, for his life, and or like you said that he, which we can talk about in a minute, but uh, you know that he was this kind of this the, the Christian writers just kind of came up with these um, pre-existing pagan stories uh, and and took elements of them and then created this mythical figure and gave him the name Jesus. Um, you know what I find fascinating. Well, I guess we could talk about first of all the, the one point to make on this is that uh, again when you look at this and more detail and peel it back, you see that that this this is a fairly, in terms of history, a fairly new argument. Um, and I like to highlight that because you know, the first real kind of individual who kind of grabs onto this mythicist argument, or at least not so much that, but really kind of uh, it takes elements of, of uh, you know, e- Egyptology and, and uh, those kind of myths from, from the Egyptian world and apply it to Christ is, a, you know, a British poet by the name of Gerald Massey, who is an amateur Egyptologist back in the 19th century. So he died in the early 20th century. Um, so, you know, this, this, this whole notion really, frankly, is not that, that long. It goes back to about the 19th century, late 19th century, mid-19th century, early 20th century uh, is when this really comes to, to the forefront. And it, it's kind of been adopted by a number of people in the modern world in the late 20th century, early 21st century. Um, so so I, I bring that point up because it leads to another point, which I think really kind of destroys this argument, is that um, – Besides getting into you know extra Christian text, which we will talk about in a minute, of of you know the uh, illustrating that Jesus was a real person, but the other point I want to make is that um, you know the early pagan attacks, the early pagan Roman critics of the Christian faith, in particular, there were two individuals, Celsus and Porphyry, uh, and there were others, but none of them make the argument that Jesus is not a real person. So I find that highly um, I think, it, frankly, I think it destroys this entire mythicist argument because if those who were most, who were very close to the origins of Christians, of, of the Christian faith, right? I mean, these both both these men are writing, you know, uh, early, you know, second century, third century. I mean, they're writing at a time that's that's very close to the beginnings of the church and beginnings of of the Christian faith, and they do not. Use that argument. You would think if they wanted to destroy this this growing, still very very small, but yet growing minority group within the Roman Empire, of all of the criticisms that they level against the church, and of which there are many, you would think that the one thing that they would at least, if if it was true, that they would sink their teeth into, is this is this notion that oh yeah this this guy wasn't real, the Christians just made him up. But they they don't do that. They they believe they acknowledge that Jesus was a real person, uh, so you know I, 
frankly, how anyone <laughs> just based <laughs> on that argument alone, how anyone can then believe these kind of this 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 mythicist argument to me is ridiculous. It's kind of it's an argument, you know, my the argument that you know again it, it, these early pagan critics, these early early Roman attackers of the church didn't believe this or didn't advocate this. It's kind of an argument that my friend Gary Machuda, the Catholic apologist, calls you know the argument from hostile witnesses. Right, you take the writings of those who are against the church and against Christians, and although they never intended for their works to do this, you can actually use their own writings as illustration of and and of as kind of proof text, so to speak, for various Christian teachings or various Christian beliefs, and in this case, the belief that Jesus was a real person, right? That's one way we can use that. So, um, I like to focus on that, and then you know, kind of corollary to that is the, is the understanding too that you know none of the early church fathers, uh, none of their writings deals. Obviously, they don't doubt the fact that Jesus exists, but they none of them refute any kind of mythicist argument. So again, you know, we have writers, Saint Justin Martyr. You have others who are writing uh, to refute these pagan Tertullian, you know, writing to refute these these pagan attacks against the church, and none of them mention that, oh, you know, this guy over here is writing that Jesus wasn't a real person. Well, let me explain to you why he was and give, you know, proofs for it. They don't address the question. And so that begs the question, why don't they address the question? Well, they don't address the question because it follows from what we just talked about, that there, there is no, there was no, uh, this was not something that was, that was questioned because it was understood and believed and, and people knew that Jesus was a real person. And so that kind of leads us into obviously another, the obvious question is, um, you know, well, how do we know that Jesus existed if, if all we have is the New Testament? Well, you know, to 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 uh, kind of prove that he did a, he he was alive. Well, that's a great question, and you know, the way to answer that is that there are a multitude of other sources that we can that that exist that are extra biblical, uh, that are not from Christian authors, that point to the fact that Jesus existed and was a real person. You have multitude of Roman authors, people like Pliny the Younger, who was an imperial official under the Emperor Trajan, who wrote a letter to the emperor in the early second century about Christians and about their worship and the worship of this individual, you know, Jesus. Uh, Tacitus, an early Roman historian, does the same thing in his book, The Annals of Imperial uh, Rome. So does Suetonius, the, a, history, uh, a historian rather of the Caesars and of the emperors. Um, and even you have, you know, non-Roman sources, non-Gentile sources. Josephus it was a Jewish writer in the first century, uh, ver- writing, you know, just within a few decades, frankly, of the, the, the death of Christ um, and acknowledging that Jesus was a real person, that there was a group of people known as Christians who, who worship him as the Son of God and, and uh, who exist. And although there's some passages of, in Josephus' work that are called into question by various historians, uh, at least the passage that, about Jesus being a person and that Christians – being people who follow him is not really under question. So, you know, all these – we do have a plethora of extra-biblical sources which point to the fact that Jesus was real. But again, none of which I think – all of those are important, but I think the larger argument uh, is is the one, you know, I first talked about, that no pagan author ever assumed this or believed that or criticized the church for that. 
Right. And that's just an enormous, <laughs> a very great way of putting that, I think, because, right, if you're, if you're closest to the source and if no other sources closest to that event are criticizing that, well, then that, that gives you a sense of the, the grounding of, of that event. If, if it were something that were so easy, so flimsy, if it didn't actually exist and these Christians began writing about him, well, it's, it's, easy for everyone to come out of the woodwork and be talking about, you know, all oh, these Christians are crazy. They're, they're just making this up. This isn't true. We, you know, I, I think of Paul in his epistle talking about how many people have seen Jesus raised from the dead, right? And he says, go, go see, go, go check it out. Is this, you know, they're, they're alive still. Go ask them that, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But you, I mean, that's a great point you bring up, right? Right. Why would it be if the easiest argument to make, I mean, right, we're, everybody's human and we want to make the easiest argument. Usually we kind of go to whatever is the easiest thing to do. So why wouldn't these Roman pagan authors who attack the church, why wouldn't they have gone to the easiest argument that, you know, well, they believe in some fairy tale person or some you know, made up part of God? Um, if that was true, right? If that was something, it was, that they would have done that rather than spend all the time. Why would Celsus take the time, for example, to go through and attack the the, the Catholic theological understanding of the incarnation and of Jesus as being true God and true man and the resurrection and all these other things, all these other you know stories, if you will, about Christ? When it would have been easier just to have said, "Yeah, this guy was. They totally made him up. He wasn't real." Yeah, and then you get into so I had Rod Bennett on the show last week, who um, I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, he, I love having him on, on this show. And then he would say the next step in this kind of tango would then be to say, well, maybe there were sources that criticized uh, Jesus as not being real, but the church has whitewashed these. They've erased, they've burned them. But then as Rod would say, you're into conspiracy theory territory and, you know, things, it becomes a spiral from there. You're right. Yeah. And, and not only that is it a conspiracy theory, but then you kind of – for that to really be true, you have to kind of show or prove that the church has, 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 has – is opted or is you know, kind of fo- focused on doing that or, or is even interested in doing that, right? That, that somehow – I mean think about all the other th- – I mean you know, again, 2,000 years worth of church history, there have been all kinds of things that have been done in the church, um, you know, bad and good obviously, but there have been a lot of bad things frankly, and – if the church wasn't able to cover that up, something something simple, something easy, like you know the Synod of the Corpse, for example, back in the ninth century, when one pope put his predecessor's actual corpse on trial for heresy <laughs> at the whim of a secular ruler, if if we didn't whitewash that and try to take all of the the uh, you know the textural proofs of that I- event and and burn them or get rid of them, and you know why would why would the monks of you know the Benedictine monks have copied those kinds of uh, records and sources, you know, if not to save the image of the church? If you're not going to do something like that, then w- you know why wouldn't why would you then not have whitewashed something even greater, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. So what about the people who would say, and, and this I think is a growing movement. I mean, as a, a former evangelical, now Catholic, there is this growing ex-evangelical or ex-evangelical movement of, of people who are, who are questioning Jesus, um, this mythicism movement. And I think, as surprising as it is for, for you and I, and, and for maybe some of my Catholic listeners to hear about, this is a growing segment. Uh, you, you look in, on the iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app and just Google X evangelical or Jesus myth, and there's, there are podcasts dedicated to this stuff. So what about the, the people who would say, 
may take a softer approach and say, well, Jesus was a real person. We know that from history. But what he was, um, what Christians have made him is just taken all these crazy pagan myths and put them all together. Uh, and so maybe he was a real person, but he's been embellished through history, through incorporating these pagan myths. And we end up with this this real character with these mythical proportions. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense, and that's 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 a great um, great question. And yeah, that that kind of you know on the surface leads a little bit of lends a little bit of credibility, perhaps, to this this belief, right? Oh, okay, well, we'll acknowledge that Jesus was real; he was a historical person, but he wasn't the Son of God, or he wasn't you know he's not co-eternal with the Father, or he didn't you know he wasn't risen; he didn't rise from the dead, for example, um, like you have you know years ago this this group of scholars known as the Jesus Seminar that would get together and uh, every so often right. Usually right around Easter time, they'd release some kind of press release. It's, you know, everything is always around Easter when any kind of criticism <laughs> of Jesus is always around the highest, holiest feast day in the Christian calendar. But, um, you know, they would release some press statement about how, oh, yeah, you know, the, the the apostles were all mass hallucinating. He didn't really rise from the dead, these kinds of things. Um you know, fascinating, interestingly enough. I mean, it's not really a new argument, um, although people think it's kind of new and it's modern. If you go back and look at the, the you know, the writings of, of one of the early Roman uh, pagan a- attackers against the church, uh, Porphyry, I mean, he wrote the same kind of thing. He said, Jesus, you know, he did. Jesus was a real person. He said, but he wrote, which is very, which sounds very similar to what you hear in the modern world, right? Among these different groups of people, he wrote that you had, you know, that after Jesus died, that Jesus came and he tried to get people to worship the true God, right? To worship the Father, but then after he died, his apostles decided to to make him the object of worship and to turn Jesus into God. You know, he, this argument that Jesus didn't claim to be God himself, which is a whole, you know, different theological discussion we necessarily have to get into, but, but. That's the the kind of the thrust, right? It's not a new argument. Even you know a, a second century Roman author Porphyry is making that argument, uh, you know, back in the day. So uh, you know, but then that's kind of separate from what you were. That, that's linked to, but a little bit different. What you were asking in terms of these collection of pagan um, myths that, that that you know Christians took and then, then attached or attributed to Christ. Such things like you know he was born of a virgin, or that he uh, you know rose from the dead, or that he performed miracles and healings and things like that. And people will say, oh well, elements of that or those stories or those stories are told about other people or other deities, for example, uh, in these Eastern religions and specifically in some you know Egyptian cults. And more often than not, the the Egyptian god that's always brought up in this in this discussion is Horus, H O R U S, who is the the god of war and sun. And sometimes you'll hear Mithras as well that's thrown in there, another Eastern mystery religion. Um, and so you know, again, when you when you look at the on the surface, you know, you could, I think it was. Uh, earlier in the 2000s, uh, Bill Maher, the the anti you know religion atheist kind of comedian, produced a documentary, or I think he called them. Uh, I don't know if it was a mockumentary or something like that, but it was called Relig- religious or religious or something like that. It was a really weird title, but in there he he goes around and and uh, I think he went to some evangelical Christian like uh, amusement park kind of thing. I don't know, Bible Land or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm I make I might be making that. I think the Holy Land attraction. Or something. There's some. It's somewhere out there, uh, in you know, in, in kind of a more evangelical Protestant uh, America. And uh, but he went to this this uh, Holy Land, you know, adventure park kind of thing. And 
was going around interviewing Christians and saying, you know, oh, did you know? And he's describing this, the all these attributes associated with the story of the Egyptian god Horus, and then people think he's talking about Jesus, and then he reveals to them, you know, oh no, I'm actually talking about this Egyptian god, you know, who lived, you know, 1,200 years before Jesus did or something, and you know, then obviously he gets what he wants for the camera, he gets the shocked faces of the of the Christians and whatnot, but but the problem is again when you which on the surface that looks bad, but when you begin to peel the onion of that and look into it in more detail, you see that many of these things that 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 people attribute to Horus, the Egyptian god, and they link to Christ, are really you have to cherry pick. There's there's not one you know consistent. Uh, there's not even multiple consistent sources about Horus and about his origins and about the his life that one could point to and say, you know, oh, here's this this book or here's multiple copies of this same source that all have, paint this picture of who Horus is. And oh my gosh, yeah, there's all these characteristics of him that that fit exactly to who Jesus is, right, and how Jesus lived and what the Christians say about Jesus. So you have to cherry pick here and there. There's no one book. There's there's a collection of different sources. There's many variations of the Horus story, um, and and even really the more I think uh, you know argument that kind of nails the, the puts the coffin in the or puts the nail in the coffin of this is that there is no proof. There's nothing that we know of that points to the fact that these stories. Uh, these Egyptian stories were known to the apostles and or the gospel writers and or early Christian writers at the time that they're writing. So if they if they had known of these stories, you know, or if it was prevalent at the time that they were alive, then one could could maybe see some kind of connection or try to draw some connection that might have some legitimacy. But it's just not there. The, these stories became available and, and were known much, much later. They became, as I mentioned, much more prevalent and known in the 19th century uh, and were just not known at the time when these these early Christian writings were being produced. Yeah, I, I like how you underscore that. I think it's it's so important because really there is, I think, this growing danger of Again, I, I, this kind of in quotes fake news about about Jesus, right? If we can if we can dismiss him as well, maybe a real man, but he's but Christians obviously borrowed these myths from from pagans to explain the kind of more fantastical elements of Jesus. Uh, you know, if we can if we can just dismiss it that easily, I mean, I guess it comes it comes from a place of what am I trying to say? I mean, as an evangelical um, con- confronted with this idea that oh everything you hold dear is actually based on these myths, you know just 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 buying that wholesale is just is is devastating to a faith that just relies on the the Bible alone kind of thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's very, very true. Yeah, it can it can really undercut that, right? Without without the uh, you know sacred tradition and the understanding of 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 the church and of you know again a lived expression of the Christian faith for you know fifteen hundred years, you know not two thousand years, obviously. But um, yeah, that, that that makes it somebody whose whose faith is really just kind of uh, very surfacey, even um, you know would be kind of susceptible, I think, to to this kind of argument, which is why the people who are anti-Christian 
question why they utilize that argument and why it can be effective because you know they get people to question here and there and and maybe in their in their in their faith background in their faith tradition uh, questioning might not be acceptable right and so when they're presented with something that seems so shocking that really questions kind of the core of what they believe or uh, which is obviously Christ I mean he is the the center and the foundation of of you know what we believe we believe in a person the person of Jesus and who he is so if you if you attack that uh, if you attack him even more specifically uh, then yeah then you're more apt to to make uh, you know someone's loss of faith I guess more permanent uh, or more much more damaging obviously it's much more insidious of an of an attack um, and one thing that I you know forgot to mention earlier in answering the question is is just another kind of data point here another way to look at this is that uh, again, I, I like to go back to the Roman pagan, uh, you know, critics of the faith because, again, they're the ones that are that are they're you know first brought into contact with this this new thing, this this church, this faith that's growing uh, in their in their world, and so you know they I believe have a, a unique, obviously an untainted perspective uh, on on this this group and in, on this church, and so you know one of the major Roman authors I mentioned before is Celsus. He actually criticized Christians in in his in his work in order to convince Romans to not join this Christian church. Right? He he. One of his criticisms against the church was that the the Christian faith was too new. That it was you know he believed and as, as the Romans believed at the time is that a a faith was more a religion or a cult was more legitimate the the you know longer history it had so if it could trace if your if your cult if your mystery religion could ta- trace its origins to the past to the you know the far distant past to you know ancient Greece and even beyond then then you you were closer so to speak to when the gods were actually alive then your faith was more authentic. And since the Christian thing and the Christian faith was a new thing to Celsus, uh, he criticized it and said, well, obviously it's a, it's a break off of Judaism or it, it doesn't, you know, they're apostates from Judaism and it's new. So therefore it can't be true because it's not ancient. So if the Christians had borrowed from pagan myths, which, you know, again, supposedly predate Christ by a thousand plus years, then why is Celsus making that argument? Oh, that's a fantastic point to make. <laughs> so you you mentioned uh, Easter earlier, and maybe really quickly, along with Christmas, these are every, every year, <laughs> every year, you hear how these are just borrowed pagan holidays. Um, do you want to just quash that <laughs> real quick? Yeah. Yeah, you know, Easter is the easier of the. I mean, they're both pretty easy to quash, but Easter is. It, it boggles my mind, frankly, that people think that Easter is somehow borrowed from a pagan holiday because, um, it, you know, there was such for multitude of different reasons. But one of which is that there was such huge debate in the early church about the dating of Easter. Right. No one, no one doubted in the early church that that Easter was a, was should be celebrated. Um, you know that it was a, a the celebration of Christ's resurrection. That it should be celebrated every every week. Um, you know, on Sunday, on the day that he rose from the dead. Um, you know, but and so, but there, what what they did question was, well, when do we celebrate it? Right. I mean, you had this kind of different tradition develop in the church and in, in the eastern part of the church. Uh, it was more tied to the actual, um, you know, date of the Jewish month, the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, um, which is more tied exactly to Passover. But in the Western world, it, it the, you know, the practice 
grew into into taking the celebration of Easter and celebrating it on you know the the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox, which again is around the time of Passover. So the dating is is somewhat similar and close, uh, but the Western tradition really. The biggest difference is the Western tradition moved the the feast to a Sunday, always put ahead on a Sunday, whereas in the East they always kept they kept it on that specific day tied to the Jewish uh, Jewish month and Jewish celebration. So, anyways, so but there was a big um, debate in the early church about this about how when do we celebrate it? And we have you know one of the canons, one of the uh, discipline canons from the first ecumenical council in the Council of Nicaea in three twenty five talks about the dating of Easter and how the Western method was chosen to be the one that should be celebrated throughout the whole earth or throughout the whole church. So. You know, again, Easter, it's very easily documented that it was something that was celebrated from the very beginnings. It's not something that's – that's, uh, and the Christian belief in the resurrection was present from the very, very beginning, uh, and it's not in any way, shape, or time tied to a pagan holiday. The only thing that kind of – you know, and where this gets a little complicated for people is that uh, people kind of point to this so-called Anglo-Saxon uh, celebration of Esther Moth, uh, which, which they say, well, that word looks very similar to Easter, so obviously that that's why the Christians chose it. Um, but the only source we have for this so-called Anglo-Saxon pagan uh, celebration you know, in the spring called Esther Moth is from St. Bede, who himself a Christian writer, writing in you know, the 6th century. So uh, that's a bit suspect, number one, but then number – just because there's only one source of it and there's no other source that corroborates that. Uh, and it wasn't even mentioned as if it was some kind of big event. Uh, but also what, what kind of kills us too is, it, is that the word Easter only looks – like that Anglo-Saxon word in English, uh, because most other languages, especially the Latin-based Romance languages like Spanish and French, they they use a different word uh, for Easter. It's you know it's it's from the the Hebrew word or you know uh, or usually from the from the Greek word pasha. Right, which comes from the Hebrew pesh. So it, the the etymology of the word just doesn't make sense to this pagan, you know, this whole so-called pagan argument that Christians borrowed it from from paganism. So Easter, I think, is pretty easy to to uh, to, to to you know. Uh, prove that it doesn't come from pagan backgrounds. So Christmas is a little bit different um, because, on, again, on the surface, it seems as if you could point to certain Roman holidays uh, and feasts associated with the god Saturnalia or the god Sol Invictus. Um, that's where you usually see these comparisons that the Romans celebrated in the wintertime. This feast of Saturnalia, uh, which was to the Roman god Saturn, it was a great feast. He's the god of agriculture, and so, in, you know, at the at the at the end of planting season, the beginning of winter, you know, you have this um, uh, big celebration in Rome, but uh, and throughout the empire. But even that, it's it's a little bit. You know, fuzzy because the celebration is different. I mean, in different Roman documents and different Roman sources, it's celebrated differently. Sometimes it's a it's a multi day feast, like it's two days. Sometimes it's a seven day feast. Sometimes it's five days. Uh, it's not always celebrated on December twenty fifth. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. So there's really no clear you know connection to Saturnalia, even though one could try to pinpoint it and say, well, it was celebrated on December twenty fifth. True, but it was also also celebrate on other days. So, you know, that doesn't really hold water when you when you begin to look at it. In terms of Sol and 
Invictus. That's another one where you know this was the Roman cult to the sun god Sol, um, and and that event is even more species. Frankly, it was never an annual event. It was only occasionally. There's only one source that points to this being on the calendar on the, on a, on a calendar and being celebrated on December 25th, and that's a Christian source. So uh, you know why why would the Christians point to or, or you know use that that specific date um, and, and in that one document rather for uh, when Sol Invictus is celebrated on December 25th or it's it's, it's you know kind of annotated on that date as being celebrated it's also annotated that Christmas is celebrated so this is in the fourth century document so you have both feasts if you will a pagan feast and a Christian feast listed on the same in the same document in the middle of the fourth century the reality about Christmas though is why do we pick December 25th I mean obviously that's not in the scripture uh, there's no date that's you know there's nothing that specifies the date of the birth of Christ so how did Christians come to center on December 25th well really you have to kind of back into that date um, because the real important date is March 25th. And March 25th is the day that Christians believed is when uh, the angel, the Archangel Gabriel, came to visit Our Lady at the Annunciation, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit on that day, on the day of March 25th. Now, why was that day chosen? Well, there was a lot of linkage to uh, Jewish understanding of creation and the Jewish – of the date of when creation happened and also the Jewish tradition of Abraham's sacrifice taking place on that day. So early Christians believed that March 25th was the date of the Annunciation when Mary conceived Christ by the Holy Spirit in her womb, and so then – Nine months from March 25th, when you know typically human children are born or ch children are born, you have December 25th, and that's when Christmas should be celebrated. And there's a lot of other theological um, connotations that are associated with that, but we have a lot of early Christian sources that point to the fact that Christmas was celebrated on December 25th. The writings of St. Augustine, for example, um, he mentions it in his treatise on the Trinity, that Christians celebrate Christmas, the birth of, of Jesus, on December 25th. Uh, so it really has more to do with the Annunciation than it does with, with you know, adopting some kind of pagan um, holiday or festival. Yeah, and again, we have to go back to looking at why these myths are so prevalent. And, you know, we've covered that ground, but again, just... R reminding us as as Catholics, as as non-Catholic Christians, I mean, as as believers in a world that is increasingly uh, post-Christian world, we have to be critical of these sources. You know, the news outlets that every Easter, or every Christmas, dredge out these ideas. I've I've heard this from the the pulpit as a Protestant. I've heard it said, well, you know, Easter, we're celebrating this today, but it's really just a repurposed pagan holiday. Even though we know Jesus lived and and died and rose from the dead, you know, we shouldn't make too big of a deal because Easter is really just a paganized kind of thing. I mean, I've heard it from a, I heard it from a pulpit, from a, a, a pastor who was a learned individual who, who knew knew a lot of stuff, but still fell for these kind of popular, secular kind of myths about the pagan roots of the church for, for whatever reason. Right, and I, I think a lot of that maybe stems from, or some of it maybe stems from the fact that that a we we, we don't you know the person who's saying these things maybe doesn't know um, the difference or doesn't know how to refute that or um, you know again like you said it just becomes susceptible to this you know secular cultures or uh, you know secular interpretation of of these just different Christian events um, and so we and and it's subtle sometimes we just don't even think about it right that's that's what we talked about at the top of the show here is just 
is the fact that we have to uh, – and that's what you know. I know you're doing with your podcast and what I try to do in my writings is try to, to present things from an authentic Catholic perspective, which obviously come into contact then with this more modern kind of you know false narrative that's been prevalent for these last you know five six hundred years or so five hundred years or so and and it kind of you know we need to shock ourselves into thinking more about these events and thinking more about what we we have heard um, and trace the origins of those myths and, and then begin to realize that oh well those that's not really true so what what is the truth right so maybe you have to do a little more research as, as you know in your example this this um, you know pastor or priest uh, you know has to or pastor was has to go through and and you know maybe pull that onion back a little bit right pull the layers of that back and say well is that really true i mean do, do we really adopt christmas from pagan holidays or easter from pagan well well let me look at that in more detail and do some more research you know um we have to challenge those those commonly held um narratives yeah you know what you said earlier too about us living in this kind of sound bite culture right we have like a 30 second tolerance for a youtube video or a sound clip kind of thing um, the people who are who are slogging through these longer podcasts are real are real saints because our culture is just so adapted to these small short snippets. And when you hear ah Easter or Christmas, they're just borrowed. You know, Christianity is just a repurposed pagan religion. Uh, you hear that in a thirty second soundbite, and you listen to it, and you're done, and you that seeps into your into what you believe about you know your schema, what you believe about the world, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it comes even more clear, too, especially if you hear it when you're young, right? If you hear something like that in school, uh, when you're a young person, right? Even Pope Leo Thirteenth back in the 19th century, when he, he wrote about uh, – and when he opened up the Vatican Archives, for example, or the Vatican Library, rather, to to outside Catholic researchers or anybody who could come in or any researcher come in and look at the, the documents, certain documents in the Vatican Library, he, he mentions that in the document that opened the library that he – to the outside researchers. He says, you know, those when you when you learn a false history at a young age, it makes it so much more difficult to eradicate it when you're older because this is something that you've been taught or you've heard for so long and it just becomes you know you you enculturate it or you incorporate it into your, your worldview, into your narrative of of the church, of these things. And so again, when confronted by it, it really shocks people um and, and and sometimes you know sadly you're not you're not even confronted by it so you never know you can go through your whole life and never you know have have heard anything other than something that attacks you know the, the faith and a fundamental uh, notion like saying christmas and easter were borrowed from pagans and you just you know you continue to celebrate because it's tradition it's culture it's you know, part of your family experience whatever but then you never you never question it and 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 think about well maybe that's not really true you know you know, that leads so well into the last myth I wanted to tackle. And it's the so-called, it's the idea that the, the so-called pagan Christian church um, um, invented the idea of the Virgin Mary based on pagan myths. And I think this is just so dangerous because this keeps, you know, this is maybe one of the number, maybe the number one or one of the top reasons why so many Otherwise, God-seeking and spirit-filled Christians uh, don't even consider the Catholic Church as a viable option because uh, it's seen as, you know, well, the Catholic Church, like Jesus is real and, and he founded a church and all these things are good. But hey, the Virgin Mary, that was definitely borrowed from pagan mythology um, to make 
Christianity more palatable to pagans. You know, we have to, um, we have to allow some female aspect to, to, to God. So here's the Virgin Mary. You know, we'll, we'll repackage some, some pagan myths to invent this idea of the virgin birth and, um, to kind of elevate this, this human character. And I mean, I, I certainly encountered a lot of this as a non-denominational evangelical Christian, right? The, Mary's elevation in the Catholic Church was seen as some kind of leftover pagan vestige, idolatry of, of some kind based on this corrupted Catholic Church. Can you walk us through maybe some of the supposed pagan myths that are supposed to be related to Mary and 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 talk about how we can debunk these? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's you know, it's like what you said. I mean, we talked about earlier with with Jesus not being a real person, the mythicist. I mean, many of these mythicists who advocate that position also advocate the belief that you know, oh, Mary either was not or she's not a real person. She's just an amalgamation of various pagan mythical stories that Christians took and, and created this mythical figure of, you know, you have the mythical figure of Jesus, so you have to have the mythical figure of his mother, um, you know, and again, it's it's, it's, it's these, it's borrowed from these Egyptian or Eastern mystery rites, um, mystery cults, because, you know, there are a lot of, supposedly a lot of similarities. We have, you know, the, the deity is born of a virgin, so you have to have, if there's this, you know, virgin birth in, in these Eastern mythical religions, supposedly that Christians borrowed from, then Christians had to create their own, uh, you know, myth about the virgin birth. Uh, but again, when you look at when you peel the onion back, as as I keep saying, you know, and look at these myths in more detail in terms of their origin and what what it really means. A lot of these Egyptian cults, you know, closer examination, it really is not the a, a you know the god being really literally being born of a virgin. There is there is a you know some kind of nuance or or other aspect to the story which which doesn't quite fit with the Catholic, you know, inter- Christian understanding of, of of Mary and her role in the economy of salvation. In many cases, there is some kind of sexual encounter between one deity and another uh, that that leads to the birth of the God. Uh, sometimes there's a miraculous. Uh, cr- you know, creation story associated with it, like the deity is is created from a rock, um, you know, and then given to this virgin to be their mother. So not actually the you know a, a mother virgin mother actually giving birth to the to the person, um, you know. And again, many of these these kind of pagan mythology uh, is 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 much later in in uh, you know christian history for example in the 19th century is when these things kind of accrete to the church or people began to then use them and criticize the church for them so a lot of things we said earlier in terms of jesus about you know early roman pagan authors do not use this this line of attack against Christians. Um, no Christian, no church father, you know, has to defend the the Catholic understanding, the Christian understanding of who Jesus is uh, and who Mary is. Uh, you know, until you get to the fifth century. Right, where in the fifth century you have a, a theological discussion that erupts in the church, right, between um, you know Nestorius, who's the patriarch of Constantinople, and uh, you know the uh, um, the patriarch of of Antioch at the time, uh, Cyril, right, or I'm sorry, of Alexandria. Saint Cyril of Alexandria discusses this whole notion uh, with Nestorius, because Nestorius gets up in the middle of the fifth century. And again, he's the patriarch of Constantinople, and he argues that that Mary is not the mother of of God. 
God. She's he's, she's just the mother of of you know Christ of the or of uh, of the you know the fleshy garment, the human Christ, so to speak, the human Jesus. And so, really, that's you know not only an attack on Mary, obviously, but it's an attack on Christ Himself because it, it separates Him into two different persons, uh, and not being the one divine person who who is both man and God. But anyways, you know, the church deals with that and dealt with that at the Council of Ephesus in the in the year four thirty one. So. Um, you know, e- even something like that, right? It's, it's kind of an internal uh, church questioning, but 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 Nestorius, even then, right? There's no discussion in the church about, you know, well, we shouldn't believe Mary is the mother of God because, you know, that's really something that's more Eastern, uh, you know, pagan cultish. We just kind of borrowed that, and we sh- we should really, uh, you know, get rid of that or not believe that, right? And, and that's not that's not prevalent in any of of the early church fathers' teachings at all. Mary is recognized as being the mother of God, that she is the Theotokos in Greek, right? That she is uh, you know, the queen of heaven. And and even that title, right, is something that people say, oh, that's borrowed from paganism or borrowed from, uh, you know, these this kind of this pantheon, this this female character that might play a very important role in in the pantheon of pagan gods, um, you know, like the, the ancient, you know, Greek or Roman or Eastern, you know, female deities that may have been called queens. Christians just took that title and attributed it to Mary, um, and that misses the point of what that title is, right? What that title, Queen of Heaven, means is it's it's more uh, in the Davidic sense of queen, right? The, the, the queen in the Davidic kingdom was not the wife or wives, as the case was, of the various Jewish kings, right? But rather it was the queen, it was the mother, the mother of the king. Uh, and it wasn't really a title that was kind of a, a, a royal title in terms of, of you know, the – I mean, it was a royal title, but it wasn't like a title that was used in terms of exercising actual day-to-day authority in the, in the kingdom. It was a title uh, of honor and of reverence given to the mother of, of the king. Uh, and that fits, obviously, Mary, right? King, we believe that Christ is Lord and king, and therefore his mother, in the Davidic sense, should be considered queen of of heaven, um, and it's also because of you know her role in the economy of salvation. I mean, she she plays a very important role. If not for her, yes, right at the Annunciation, um, then then how how would or how could you know have Christ have have come? Obviously, it's he's God. God could have chosen many different ways in which to have that happen, but he chose for the coming of his son to be uh, kind of tied, frankly, to the the will, to the to the yes, to the the af- the affirmation of of a woman, um, and in a beautiful way. And so, you know, that's that's uh, I think a very important understanding of of Mary's role, obviously, for us in the economy of salvation. She shares in Jesus's royalty, and so then because of of her fiat and because of that, uh, that cooperation with God and, and his, his, uh, will for humanity. And so we should rightly then honor her. And it's not from any kind of pagan mythology that we do so, but because of, of our, our own understanding of who Jesus is, first of all, and then who Mary, his mother is. (laughs) Well said. Okay. Last question I have for you here, and it's time to get a little bit pastoral on your part and give us some, some advice here, I think. Um, as a as a non-Catholic Christian, you know, I believed a lot of crazy stuff about the Catholic Church. And a lot of those kinds of misconceptions and and beliefs about, about doctrines and 
uh, a fundamental misunderstanding of the history of Christianity, I think keeps a lot of people away from the Catholic Church. And, you know, I love having you on this program because your goal is so similar to my goal. It's this filling in those gaps of that clarifying those those misunderstandings. And if you could, what advice would you give to us um, when we're confronted with these myths by friends or family or colleagues? How do we persevere in trying to explain what you call the, the real history of the Catholic Church in a world that oftentimes has has no clue about that in quotes, you know, real history. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question, and uh, it's obviously very relevant for for many many people, right? Because you know we're all on our faith journey in different ways, and we, you know, not all of us are from families that uh, you know every member of our family is a faith believing Catholic and is a, as on fire for the faith as we are. So when we come to to study and know the, the you know the real story, as I call it, uh, of of Catholic history. And then we're confronted with, you know, I always like to use this phrase when I give talks, you know, you're at Thanksgiving dinner and everything's going great. And right before, you know, dessert is served, Aunt Marge lobs the, the grenade of the Inquisition on the table, right? And uh, <laughs> and then everybody stops and then you're the, you know, everybody turns to you because you're the, you know, the Orthodox faith-believing Catholic and, you know, now you have to defend that. So what do you say and how do you do it, right? So, um, you know, many of us have probably had that experience, but um, – you know, the first thing we have to do is 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 it is which is true of any form of apologetics, right? And this really comes down to historical apologetics, but it is to um, first of all be charitable, right? In any kind of discussion that we have, we have to listen. And part of being charitable means we have to listen to what the other person is saying, uh, and and then we have to challenge in a charitable way, right? So there's there's ways not to do that, right? You don't want to say if you know. Marge, you know, who's a revered member of the family, whatever, throws the grenade of the Inquisition on the table. You don't want to scream at Marge or yell at Marge or, you know, or just call her names or this or that. That's obviously not going to help your case and will turn everybody against you. And so even if you're telling the truth and you present this, this, you know, fantastic, uh, you know, authentically scholarly cited, you know, dissertation on the Inquisition, no one's going to pay any attention to you, right? So you have to, we have to listen and then challenge. And what I like to do is when people say things to me that that are obvious that that I know are historically inaccurate. I like to ask them a couple of questions, right? You like just in very innocuously and very charitably just say, well, oh yeah, well, where did you hear that? Or or you know, why why do you think that? Or oh really, you know, what and it's more it's it's kind of derivative of, you know, what source you're using. I mean, you can ask that if you know the person really well. You could say, you know, what exact sources are you using for that? But even in a more innocuous way, just ask people, you know, where, where did you hear that? Um, you know, like you're you're very interested in wanting to know where they got that information, and because you are, because then you can help lead them through the path of seeing. Well, okay, well, you know, I, I heard that you know when I was in fifth grade or something. My fifth grade history teacher told me that. I'm like, okay, well, you know, have you studied anything on that subject since that time? Um, might be a follow-up question, right? And so you kind of help. You have to lead kind of people down the path of of reason. In a society where we really don't base our arguments on reason, so it's a very tall task. <laughs> you know, we we base a lot of our of our argumentation and and, and discussion on emotion, uh, and so we have to try to take the emotion out of the argument and focus more on just reason. But but ask the source, you know, and then posit questions. Say, well, well, do you think maybe there would be a you know a, a different understanding of that event or of that historical person? Um, you know, do do you think maybe the you know the church might have something to say about that? 
that or, you know, a different perspective or, um, you know, or here's a really good book, you know, that I recommend that you might want to just, you know, investigate on your own time about this particular topic and see see what you, you think. Um you know, so we so we have to we have to educate, uh, we have to inform, but we have to do so with charity in all cases, right? And and sometimes it's going to take different forms, right? If it's a family member or somebody we know really well, maybe we can be more direct, uh, and we can be a little bit more pushy, so to speak, um, depending on our relationship with the person. But if it's a stranger or somebody we don't know, then obviously we should we should proceed with a bit of caution, and then obviously just pray too. I mean, we we have to realize that it's not so much about uh, you know, although we want to be right and we want to present authentic history, at the end of the day, right, studying church history is – we study it for the same reason that we should study the teachings of the church or we should spend time in prayer and in, in learning about scripture. Uh, it's to grow closer to Jesus and to be more grafted onto his church, and and that's what we want for other people as well. And so if we, if we beat people over the head or if we come across as being very negative, if we come across as being, you know, I'm smarter than you and I know more than you do, um, and these kinds of things. It, that's not. That's not. It, we might win the argument. We might successfully show somebody that what they believe about this historical event is incorrect and wrong. But if we've lost their soul in the process, it really wasn't worth the effort, right? It wasn't worth the victory, um, because that's the end game, right? The end game is not just winning the argument about history. It's more important than that. It's about Christ and about helping lead that person to Jesus, because we want, we want that. That person, right? To as we want to be, right? Uh, experiencing and living uh, the the beatific vision to be with Christ forever in heaven, uh, and that's what it's all about. So. Uh, you know that's that's what kind of motivates me, frankly, uh, to do this kind of work is not only just to to provide an authentic history for Catholics in the modern world because we don't get it. Our history is mostly presented from a Protestant English perspective, or from more increasingly a very secular perspective, which is anti-Christian and anti-faith as a whole. Um, and so that motivates me just to get good information out there, good sources out there for for Catholics that you know. I mean, I'll take the time to read a 600 you know heavily footnoted scholarly work, so you don't have have to kind of thing. Um, <laughs> although I will tell you where I got the information from. So if you want to do that, you can. Um, but most people don't have the time to do that. But I will do that because I enjoy that and I like that and it's part of my work. So uh, I'll present that to you. But at the end of the day, you know, it's all about winning souls for Jesus. Steve Weidenkopf, always so reasonable, always so charitable. I love having you on the show. Uh, where can people go to find out more about your work and to hopefully buy your book en masse? <laughs> Oh, great. Yeah, Keith, thank you so much again for having me on the podcast. I, I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, they're very lively, and, and, uh, and it's a great time. But uh, people can learn more about me and my work. Uh, at I have a website. It's just my name, stevewidenkopf.com. So that's just one word together, uh, no space there. And uh, on there, I have descriptions of all the different books that I have out. Uh, there's a book on the Crusades that I wrote years ago about uh, you know the, kind of uh, combating the modern myths and misconceptions about the Crusades. There's one called The Real Story of Catholic History, answering 20 centuries of anti-Catholic myths that we, we kind of really focused and talked about uh, on the podcast today. And, and then my new book is, as you mentioned earlier, is Timeless uh, History of the Catholic Church, which is a one-volume narrative history. And all of those you can buy on Amazon. You can see them on my website as well. And if you go to my website, I actually have links directly to the Catholic publishers, uh, Catholic Answers, and Our Sunday Visitor who published those books. You can also buy them from, from those um, uh, those individuals if, or those companies if you want to as well. 
That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Steve, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and God bless you and all the amazing work that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks, Keith. And God bless you as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I really, truly hope you've learned something from this interview with Steve Weidenkopf. I know I did and I always do when I chat with him. Make sure you check out the show notes for this show to find out how to learn more from Steve, how to find his website and find his books and buy his books. They're truly fantastic, and I'm in complete agreement with Steve on the purpose of his writing. It's my purpose here, too, to help dispel misunderstandings about Catholicism, whether it's theology, doctrine, dogma, or history. That's my purpose, and it's Steve's, too, and he's fantastic in this area. Check out the show notes, check out his website, and make sure you buy his books. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, or whatever podcatcher you use. If you can, please leave a rating or a review that helps push this podcast out to new people, helps the algorithm to pick it up and serve it to new folks who might be interested. I'm really grateful for those that can leave those ratings and reviews. Thank you so much. The website is thecordialcatholic.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter at thecordialcatholic on Facebook and at cordialcatholic on Twitter. Send email to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. And if you want to support this show, even one or two dollars a month goes a very long way in helping to keep the lights on and the show running. I'm at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, and I greatly appreciate your prayers, your fasting, and your financial support. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell your friends, tell your family, share this podcast wherever you'd like to. And please pray for me. I'll pray for you. Thank you. And God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial cafe. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.